This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Hi, this is Matthew Sweezy, author of The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on The Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to arm their sales teams to take back control of their company's growth. We're not a fit for every company, but if that sounds like you, check out salesartillery.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Matthew Sweezy to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Matthew Sweezy is Principal of Marketing Insights for Salesforce, a researcher, thinker, and writer. He's also the author of Marketing Automation for Dummies, and he keynotes at conferences around the world. In addition to his books, Matthew continues to write for Ad Age, Brand Quarterly, Venture Beat, Forbes, The Observer, The Economist, and many others. So when not behind a podium or sifting through data, he routinely works with the world's largest and most well-respected brands, including UPS, Home Depot, AT&T, and Dell. And, interesting fact, he's a hardcore outdoor adventure guy. Matthew, congratulations on the Context Marketing Revolution, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me on, Douglas. So I should also say that uh, you're a University of Georgia graduate. Go Bulldogs. I am. And uh, I believe you're the first one I've had on from uh, Georgia. And as uh, we've spoken previously, I've got lots of relatives who are Georgia grads. And it all fits nicely into this uh, secret agenda I have of trying to get as many authors from the different SEC, Southeastern Conference Schools. So uh, now you're here. I've had an author from Auburn, Alabama, two from Florida, one from Texas A&M. I mean, it's all coming together for me. Well, glad I could help out with that goal of yours. So it's an ambitious one. Just don't get us all in the same room at the same time. Oh, oh, no, I would not do that because... Matthew Sweezy, I'm a uniter, not a divider, and I don't want to, uh, you know, have those kind of things happen. In fact, I was giving a talk in Birmingham, Alabama, some months ago, and I was talking about all these different books that are on the podcast, and I pointed to one that was up on the screen, and I said, hey, you know what? She's an Auburn grad, and about a third of the audience went crazy. They were all Auburn fans, and then I said, okay, I know where I am. I know by 
law here in Alabama, I have to mention Alabama. And I said, I did interview uh, an author, Philip Stutz, who's a University of Alabama grad. Half the audience went crazy. So, you know, I, I really do have to tread carefully. That is the SEC. Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. So I want to mention that uh, I think I'm on to something. If I see that someone works for salesforce.com, their book is going to be good. And that's why I say, I liked your book. We've talked about that. It's going to come through in this interview. But also, I had the honor of interviewing Tiffany Bova about her book, Growth IQ. And I just love that book. I talk about it all the time. I gave a webinar a couple weeks ago to a manufacturing association and had several slides devoted to that. So that is that is really, I, I think I'm... Uh, I've, I've cracked the code, one of the, one of the many codes of finding really good books. Well, I'm glad, yeah, Tiffany's on my team. Uh, we're colleagues, and she's a brilliant mind, uh, and I just can't say enough good things about her. Yeah, so let me just quote from uh, the beginning of the book and get into the, some of these questions. We've got so much to cover, we won't be able to get to all of it, but here we go. Motivating consumers today has nothing to do with getting their attention and everything to do with understanding their context. That is, their current position in time and space and whatever their task may be in that moment. Today, helping people achieve their immediate goals is the only way to break through the noise and motivate consumers to act. The era of infinite media has already been unfolding for a decade or more, so we'd better get started. This book will help. So, Matthew, let's start with a day in history, June 24th, 2009. And I want you to tell us what happened. And no, I'm not talking about the fact that that was Mindy Kaling's 30th birthday. She's the actress who has uh, been in several movies and on the TV show The Office. Uh, And it's also the day that the African nation of Togo abolished the death penalty. Matthew Sweezy, what happened on June 24th, 2009. Yeah, so uh, so first of all, let's get to how I get to this day, and then we'll kind of get to what that day actually is. So with my job, I really focus on the future of marketing and help own that point of view for the organization and deliver that in lots of different formats, this being one of them. And so part of looking forward into the future of marketing, one of the things I was researching was what is it going to cost to drive demand moving forward? Uh, And so if you start looking at these calculations, one of the things that you would need to measure is noise and what is the volume of noise? How is it growing and how are we breaking through it and and how does that change? So I started tracking noise um, and went back as far as 1900 and projected forward as far as 2030. And what I started to do was, you know, track all the traditional channels as well as you then have to start adding in human channels, right? More specifically email, messaging, um, social uh, notifications and lots of these different channels. And what we saw and what anyone would expect is that noise is gone, had a little rocket ship, a hyper growth ride. Um, and, you know, that's not very unsurprising. We all know there's lots more noise. But when I broke the data set out into noise created by businesses and noise created by consumers and their devices. Something very interesting happened. What we saw was two very different growth patterns and two very different stories on noise. Um, In fact, they act very differently. Um, People feel very differently about them. And where those two lines intersect, where business noise and consumer noise intersect is that date that you mentioned in 2009. And what this means is anything before that date, 
the environment was completely filled and dominated by noise created by businesses. And in that point in time, I call that the limited media era. And, and we'll get into that in, in a little bit in the definitions of limited versus infinite media. But then after that date in 2009, the largest creator of noise in the marketplace is now consumers and their devices bringing us into the infinite media era. So when we talk about breaking through the noise, we just can't talk about breaking through the noise as if it's all the same. We must understand that now the largest creator of noise is consumers and their devices. And this is a very different environment that we must operate in, uh, changing the very foundations of media, the media environment, and specifically then consumer, consumer behavior, and then marketing, which is how we respond to those things. So let's go a little bit further into that and explain what you mean by limited media, infinite media. And I love this analogy, and I've already started using it in presentations because it's so much better at explaining what I've been struggling to explain to to people in conversations as well as in presentations. Yeah, so we all have the same problems. There's lots of things that we are nascently aware of. Um, And and when I really started to dive in, and I also have to take a step back. So understanding where I come from in my point of view will kind of help understand these theories and these ideas. So I'm a massive fan of Marshall McLuhan. Um, I actually got to work with his son and grandson on the creation of some of these ideas in this book. And Marshall McLuhan is one of the grandfathers of what we would call media theory. And media theory is a, a fundamental theory that essentially says that media environments, just like any other environment, dictate what happens within them, right? Basic analogy, right? If the oxygen ratio to nitrogen ratio of gas in the environment changes, we as humans and all things that depend on air are going to have to adapt and change, right? Environmental change affects all things. And specifically when we think about media, right, it's it's not important that Twitter exists. Yes, that's cool. Right? I don't care what you tweet. The fact that everyone in the world has the ability to create, distribute, and consume, that's what's important. So here's what we need to understand. Before that date in 2009, we lived in a limited media era. And what that meant was media in any format was limited in three specific factors, creation, distribution, and access. Now, my father and grandfather were both print shop teachers. So it wasn't too long ago that we did not even have digital printing, right? You would actually have to physically make the advertisement, take a picture, and that's how it actually made it into a magazine. Uh, So in that limited media era, the largest creators of noise were businesses. Now, this also then, we need to think about how you then overcome those limitations. And the only way to overcome those limitations was capital. If you wanted to create media, you had to have the money to create it. You then had to have the money to go through a pre-existing distribution channel, such as a newspaper, a radio station, a television program, to then distribute that content. And then finally, it was all of an analog sort, which means it was very hard to recall, and it did not exist for very long. Hence, it was all a limited environment. And why this is very critical is because environments are wrappers around everything, right? They, they dictate the rules of how we operate inside that environment. And why this is very important is because the modern idea that we have of marketing was created during that limited era, right? And if you want to go back to the golden era of marketing, right, that was 1970 in the heart of the limited media era. Now, if we fast forward in contrast to where we are now, we live in the infinite media era. There are no bounds to creation. In fact, we live in a point in time where more people on the planet have access to a cell phone than have access to clean drinking water or electricity, right? 
and what can each one of those devices do? Each one of those devices can create media. It can instantly distribute it to anyone anywhere in the world, and then that media exists for eternity and is instantly accessible by anyone. And what we really need to understand is how that then changes consumer behaviors and how that then changes how we respond to them. So that's really the basics of limited versus uh, infinite media. It's true, and even a knuckleheaded podcaster like the host of this show, they can suddenly be reaching people in over 150 countries. So yes, it's truly (laughs) unlimited media. Can you say more about how infinite media has transformed business forever? Yeah. So, you know, we've all, the digital, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, digital transformation, these are topics most of us are probably pretty familiar with, right? The idea that an experience is the highest economic output that we can produce as a firm. Um, That was experience economy, Joseph Pine, another Harvard business author. Um, Digital transformation, moving our businesses past just this concept of we are just producing a product to understanding we need to produce these larger experiences, highly connected things. Uh, Marriott's a great example, right? You now go into a Marriott and you check in with an app. You then go and use the same app to unlock the door at your, uh, for your hotel room. You can then can order all of the services right there from the same app inside your hotel room, radically changing the customer experience. Now, we then take that forward and also say that's how businesses have adapted from a transformational standpoint. It also has radically changed the individual. And that's really one of the things that I try to focus on at the beginning of this book is saying how do consumer decision making processes change when given infinite access to information and not just any information but highly trusted information. Um, And that's really where we kind of get to the crux of this book. And that's where we talk about why is context the new ground in the new era? And then how do we motivate these individuals uh, via those methods? Right. And before we get to that, this book is based on a lot of research from salesforce.com. Can you tell us about that research as well as what some of the key findings were for companies that enjoyed consistent growth? Yeah, so one of the things I do is I help advise on a lot of the research that we run. Uh, So we have a research department, as many large organizations do, and we produce lots of different reports, um, specifically the State of Marketing Report, which we produced uh, consistently for the past, this will be the fifth year, 2020. Uh, We also look at different verticals, such as retail, as well as then specific studies on consumers. So in total, we've surveyed um, from a blind survey methodology over the past five years, over 20,000 different brands. Um, And from consumers, we've researched over from, once again, from a survey methodology, over 40,000 and global consumers. And again, these are global surveys. These are not just domestic to the United States population. These are global trends that we're looking at. And one of the key things that we've been able to do in these research studies is be able to identify the key differences between high-performing marketing organizations and everyone else. Now, the way that we define high-performer is that, number one, they are satisfied with their marketing outcomes, and number two, significantly beating their direct competition. As measured in sales? It, that's just, it's the simple question of compared to your peers, are you, uh, how are you performing against your peers? Oh, okay. So nice. it's a, yeah, yeah. And when we then look at what these performers are doing, what we realize is that they all do a lot of the exact same things, right? If we ask for a checklist and say, do you do content marketing? Everyone checks that box. Do you do inbound marketing? Everyone checks that box. You know, if we ask, who do you follow? What books do you read? Underperformers and high performers really do a lot of those exact same things. And they listen to the Marketing Book Podcast, right? They I, all listen to the Marketing Book I didn't want to force podcast. the issue, but thank you for including that question. 
No problem. But when we really dive in and we understand what the key differentiators are, the number one key differentiator is simply executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing, where the organizations shift the definition of marketing from a silo department that creates messages and campaigns to the owners and sustainers of all experiences across the customer journey. And, and that simple definition with full executive buy-in is required to then open up all the other doors that tactically must take place for these things to happen. So you've written that context marketing requires a recrafted lens to view how the whole landscape has shifted in three aspects, which you explain is what we do, how we do it, and who does it. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So when we think about marketing, we typically think about marketing as something that was created by a silo organization or a silo department. And the goal of that was to use attention as a foundation to be able to grab somebody's attention when they weren't really necessarily wanting to give it up to us, convince them of doing something, and then using that to then have them to purchase something, creating net new business. Now, when we think about what marketing is, it's radically different. It doesn't just happen for at the very beginning of the customer journey. It actually happens across an entire customer life cycle, um, as well as then, so that's one is what is its actual goal? It's not just to drive net new business. We actually see growth from high performers happening by lots of other uh, other levers, to use a term from Tiffany Bova, right? We see things such as reducing customer churn. We see increasing customer lifetime value. And we see basic aspects of marketing techniques, such as onboarding and nurturing, being applied not just into how do we create more leads and, and just get more net new business, but all aspects of customer experience. Then there's also the who does these things. And typically, marketing was something that was just done by the business itself. But now if we start looking at a, a couple of basic keywords that we probably hear a lot in the marketplace, influencer marketing, advocacy marketing, employee advocacy, right? All of these are ideas, user-generated content. These are ways that brands are working with their marketplace to co-create the marketing itself where the brand is not the sole originator of all of the experiences. Rather, they are helping orchestrate them inside of their marketplace. And finally, when we think about the scope of what marketing is, right? it's no longer just to create messages. It is now a much larger scope inside of an organization and owning the experience. That's really what I mean by those three points. So let me follow up with a quote from page eight and ask you some more questions here. As this book will show, those three shifts in marketing scope, execution, and role demand a revised growth model that brands must follow, where once we clung to the idea of build, market, sell, brands will survive only with a formulation of that model that's been flipped and expanded. Market, sell, build, market. I call this new model the context marketing model. So, Matthew, explain this concept and feel free to mention Tesla. <laughs> explain the difference between build, market, sell, and the other one I mentioned, which is market, sell, build, market. Yeah. So, once again, let's go back to why are we talking about these things in the first place? And we have to get back to that, that idea of a lot of the things that we do were games that we played given a specific environment. So when we were in a limited media environment, we operated and played very specific games. And we created businesses as the following. Businesses created a product. Marketing then told the world about that product. And we then sold that product. Hence, 
we built something, we marketed that thing, we then sold that thing. And in that framework, marketing was a byproduct of production, right? We didn't tell the world about things until they were built. Mm-hmm. Right? And we ran that play for almost 100 years, right, since the Industrial Revolution. Now what we see is a radically different business model where marketing has, as we just talked about, a different role, scope, and function. And the easiest example to give you is Tesla, right? This is the largest scale, the, the most radical numbers, um, and, and very fundamentally different at, at every conceivable level. In fact, when you look at the tape between Mercedes and their most comparable competitor, which is Mercedes-Benz, so Tesla, Mercedes-Benz, you see a radically different uh, business model. You see radically different outcomes. I mean, it's it's night and day on a scale that it, it was just too perfect not to write about. Mm-hmm. So first off, right, uh, Mercedes-Benz, I believe, is 90-plus years old at this point. Tesla, I think, at this day and age is 13 or 14. Um, market caps. When I wrote the book, market caps were somewhat similar. Today, I just checked, Mercedes-Benz market cap is $45 billion. Tesla's is $150 billion, right? Now, you're like, okay, that's cool. They do lots of stuff. How does this, this really kind of boil down to what we're talking about? If we look at the business model, right? The business model for Mercedes-Benz is they build a car, then they use a very specific marketing methodology of traditional branding, traditional advertising, traditional, you know, all the ideas that we know about to then tell the world about the car that they've made and hopes to sell that car. And now when they do that, here's the number, right? It costs them on average of $926 per comparable unit. Now we're comparing the Model 3 Tesla to the Mercedes-Benz C-Class, right? Comparable market, price, um, the most comparable units. They spent $926 per unit. Now, when I, at the time when I wrote the book, at the launch of the Model 3, that year they sold 86,000 units, which is pretty good, right? Now, we look at Tesla, and Tesla has a radically different everything. So first off, Tesla is a new company that started in the infinite media era. So they they understood that it was a new environment, so they created a different model. Now, Tesla doesn't just come out with a car and then say, hey, world, build this car. No, Tesla starts with a story and says, hey, listen, we want to help get the world off of fossil fuels, right? It's a purpose-driven initiative. They then work with their marketplace to then create the car. Right? They don't just say, hey, buy this car. They say, hey, listen, we want to get the world off of fossil fuels. And that means one day we're going to have to have a mass market electric car. For us to get there, we're going to have to invent the technology. So help us do that. If you buy this car, you're not just buying the Roadster. You're helping fuel the innovation for the next model and then the next model. And then finally, we'll get to the Model 3. Right? So it was working with their marketplace the entire time. In fact, they started marketing. They then pre-sold the car, Mm -hmm. then they built the car, and then they continue to market through an amazing buyer experience the whole way through, right? Now, when we compare the results, Tesla spends $6 on advertising per car sold. That is one 150th of what Mercedes-Benz spends on advertising. They sold three times as many cars. What's more impressive is at the time, they had never created a economy car before the car didn't even exist and they sold 270,000 of them right so it's a radically different idea made for a radically different world and that's really the best example of this notion of build market sell um, to market sell build market yes and it came to light for me yesterday even more i was outside my office building and it turns out a friend of mine a physician had parked right next to me 
And I was getting in the car just as he was getting ready to leave. And of course, he has this big red Tesla. And I said, hey, what kind of car is that? And well, that was all I had to ask. Because he then started telling me all about his Tesla and how happy he was and how all his doctor friends are buying him. And what was interesting to me, though, is that he didn't talk so much about the car as he did about the experience of being an owner. And I just thought, man, has everybody already read Matthew Sweezy's book? <laughs> so, But it was, it was so interesting. And I also have to share one thing with you. Since reading your book, there's this lens for me, which may not have been intentional, but I now look at every company or marketer or person who is either their mindset is still in the limited media era or they understand that they're in the unlimited media era. It's been such an interesting lens, and I, and I appreciate you uh, bringing it to light for me. So somewhat related to that, you've written the Digital Age Leaders have re-examined and redefined just about every aspect of their business model, except marketing. Why do you think that is? Um, well, so there's lots of reasons. One is from there's lots of adages and truisms that that are mythos, you know, not truisms that we believe as marketers. And so, for marketing, all we needed was just a, a little bit increase in technology for us to get to what we believed was the panacea, right? Right message, right person, right time. If we can just do that, everything then is is secondary after that. Um, so, you know, brands went in and invested heavily in digital architecture, um, you know, the digital transformation. And when I'm specifically talking about re-envisioning marketing, it's not just the shift of buying tools to be able to do these things. It's, it's a fundamental shift in the very idea of what marketing is. And I think many of them haven't just because the, uh, the thought never even occurred to them that what they were doing wasn't actually effective, right? You know, there's a great, there's a great quote, and I'm going to have to rack my brain for it for a second. You know, it's E.F. Schumacher, sorry, uh, Small is Beautiful, uh, Economics as if People Matter. If you've never read that book, I'd highly suggest that book to be read. Um, and in it, he talks about, he says, industry is inefficient to such a degree that it goes unnoticed, right? And when we start to think about that, the traditional ideas of marketing are highly inefficient. Um, and we just thought we could make them more efficient by buying new tools. We didn't actually question the underlying fundamental theory of what we were actually doing, so hence, we didn't think we needed to change it. We just bought new tools. Yeah, you've, you've written that uh, the problem is we've become so comfortable in our individual marketing microcosms like PR, advertising, social media, digital, that we failed to notice that the golden age of marketing and, and all that made it golden actually died <laughs> a good number of years ago. And just like you, you touched on there, I, I, let me just quote, you said, perhaps the best way to prove the significance of context and the vast difference between the limited media era and our current infinite one is to look at how many of our long-held basic truisms about marketing no longer work. And if that upsets some of the listeners, that means you're listening. <laughs> but also that, you know, I think this may be a point of transition where you start to understand more about context marketing. So, Matthew, you mentioned the the concept that marketing has to become the owners and sustainers of all experiences, and that the successful companies they are. My question, though, is how is that supposed to happen if marketers aren't able to control all aspects of the experience delivery? And I base my question in part on 
the book by Jean Bliss, Chief Customer Officer 2.0, where she says to marketing people, if you are pointed at at some conference room and they say, you, marketing person, you're in charge of customer experience now, she said to be careful, you know, unless you have some kind of buy-in because they don't really have the all the control currently in order to create and manage the experiences. Yeah, I, I'd agree. Um, so th- there's two problems. One is, well, three things. First off, remember, the number one key trait from high performers is executive buy-in to do this. Without that high-level executive buy-in, the next thing can't happen, right? And go back to the age-old adage, what doesn't get measured does not get improved. So if we don't put an executive in charge of the customer journey from start to finish and understand that that is the experience that we must keep consistent and holistic, and by optimizing that, we grow the business the best. If we don't put that executive in charge, then we can't do these things exactly like you just said. But what happens is we see the rise of the chief experience officer or the chief chief growth officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's different titles. It's the exact same role, right? It's the idea that we're growing the business in a holistic format. And marketing isn't, again, it's, it's about experiences across the journey. And, and when that executive is put in charge and they're over sales, product, user experience, support, service, we then see that those things are able to happen. But it's not until that executive is put in charge that those other departments will change. Because if they are not, if they don't have a new executive, they're going to operate for the goals that they have. Sales is going to operate on closing leads. They're not going to focus on creating a better experience. Service is not going to try to fix the problems that come to them. Rather, they're just going to make sure they get the calls done the quickest um, and figure out how to make those macros work better. Right. So we, the next step is we must have an executive in place to then man, uh, to take on that directive. So let's talk about something that every marketer should be intimately aware of: trigger. And I'm not talking about the Lone Ranger's horse. Explain why triggers are so fundamental to understanding the consumer journey. Yeah, so a trigger is something that it's essentially a way for us to help kickstart, move, and motivate, right? So a trigger is either going to happen by someone in their daily lives, right? Someone could be saying, a really good example is a lot of B2B purchases. Someone's not waking up in the morning and saying, hey, you know what I want is this enterprise thing. I need a new boiler from my room, right? No, there's a problem that exists that either gets put on their plate or something happens in their daily life. That's an example of a trigger. Um, Another trigger could be simply any way, shape, or form that you just come up with an idea, Right, those are triggers that people come up with naturally on their own that just exist in their life, and those kickstart journeys. Then there are other triggers that happen down that journey that we can then use to re-engage and, and bring those people back in and continue moving them forward. Uh, and so this is a, a combination of push and pull marketing, where we need to understand the natural triggers that start off journeys so that we can be in those moments in context to help guide them and move them forward, as well as then understand those journeys at an intimate level to know what's the appropriate time, way, place to then re-engage them with a push trigger to then re-engage and getting them back on track and moving them forward. So when we have focused on triggers, we found that to be one of the most helpful things uh, in terms of creating content and better understanding the customer. It's just something that if it reminds me of Adele Ravella's book, Buyer Personas, where she like your book, you, you you show people questions they should be asking during interviews with customers. And like the one scripted question in all her buyer persona interviews is the first one, which is take me back to that point 
where you decided to solve this problem. In other words, the people could have 200 different things they've been meaning to get to, but what is it that suddenly makes them want to start to solve this problem or whatever and look into it and get them off of the uh, inertia couch to start uh, moving forward? So I think that the more that marketers and salespeople understand what those triggers are, uh, the more uh, helpful and effective they can be. Yeah, and, and so I've definitely spoken a lot with Adela on this concept. We are very aligned on this topic, mm-hmm. and it really gets to a deeper level of purpose, or excuse me, of persona, where most people think persona is a demographic, psychographic. Um, I walk into brands, and a lot of brands will have a cardboard cutout with sticky notes um, with attributes stuck on the individual's character um, to say, this is who our persona is. The reality is personas are how people come about a problem, how they think about fixing those problems, um, and how they then go through solving them, right? It's, it's a very specific process. Um, and most brands don't understand the actual process or way that their customers move through their journeys. And that's what we mean by persona. And that has to be understood. Because if you don't understand where they come up with these ideas, where they're going, how they're moving, you can't be in context in those moments. It's just that simple. That is so true. And actually, let me ask you to explain another point from your book where you say that because of this new era we're in, targeting people demographically really doesn't make any sense. And like I mentioned earlier, it starts to identify people as those that are still in the limited uh, media era, like I used to be when I worked in advertising in New York, and we would buy media that you know uh, men 18 to 34 would see. Yeah, so it, it goes back to the, the basic concept of demographic, if you're using it for an ad buy perspective, um, and not that advertising is bad, but the way that most brands think about advertising is very archaic. And, and it goes back to a simple basic concept of all I need to do is hit you with this one thing. And this one thing is going to be so expertly crafted that and this is where we get into the the creative power, the creative genius of marketing, or, or the mythos of creative genius. The big idea, that, <laughs> right? The big idea, right? It's it's going to be so amazing that it's going to take you from zero to wherever I need you to go instantaneously. Um, and that's just not the way that modern individuals make decisions, um, because the fact of and it, it goes back to the infinite media, right? And how do we make decisions? Well, in a limited media era, for me to make a decision you would have to retain information. You need information to to make a decision. And when information is hard to come by, we naturally then store information in our brains, right? Back then, I mean, not too long ago when I was in high school and younger, I would remember telephone numbers. Now I ask the audience, I say, do you know your spouse's phone number? Most people don't know their spouse's phone number because unless it's the same one they've had for 10 years, um, because we just don't remember things. We offload our memory to digital devices because it's better at that. Now, with that same concept, now we have risk in a decision. And for me to mitigate that risk, I ask questions and I can get an instant answer, right? So now that we're asking these questions and getting instant answers, that idea of I'm just going to put one thing in front of somebody and that's going to make them you know, go from zero to 100, that may give them an idea that may say, hey, that's cool. And they, they may whatever. But then they're going to go start going down a personal journey and asking questions because for them to move from zero to anything is risk involved. And they're going to mitigate that risk by asking questions to the infinite media and receiving trusted answers. And that's 
really kind of the crux of this whole scenario of how we then motivate them. Mm. So let's walk through briefly uh, as much of your context marketing framework as, as we can. For the listener's benefit, there are five parts, and it's uh, available, permissioned, personal, purposeful, and authentic. So uh, as it relates to being available, you write that uh, making your brand experience available means consciously choosing and orchestrating how you deliver it so that your customers gain the value they seek in the moment. That is the ultimate definition of meeting customers in their context. So talk about the different levels of availability. Yeah, so availability has three levels. Um, The lowest level is force. And this is the traditional idea of marketing where we are going to force our message onto the marketplace. Uh, The next highest level is direct, uh, where we have a direct uh, relationship with an individual and can get a message to them directly. Mm-hmm. And then the highest level is organic, because when an individual is trying to find answers on their own and find us on their own, it's their idea in the first place. And it's very easy to have a relationship with somebody if it's their idea to do that thing in the first place. Yeah. Now, organic, just so people aren't confused, that's not just getting found on organic search results. No, there's lots of aspects of organic, right? We, we need to have lots of different mediums that you could be organic on. You can just take all the social channels. You can take all the digital channels, um, applications, pretty much anything that someone would find in their native day walking around engaging uh, would be organic. Mm-hmm. So on to the next one, permissioned. You've written that in the infinite media era, there's a wide range of permissions marketers must seek. What are they? Yeah, so anytime we start talking about permission, we need to really understand why we need permission. So if we've all read Seth Godin's book, right, Permission Marketing, it talks about the need to get permission to communicate with them. Most people just took that basic concept and said, all I need is to ask to get your email address. Now I can email you. That's not really what people are saying. People are saying, listen, I'm going to give you access to me. And even more importantly, I'm going to give you access to my personal data about me as long as you can use it to create the value that I seek from it, right? And so that's the notion of permission, right? We must seek permission on all these different channels to have a direct relationship with them so we have direct access and can communicate with them. Um, And to have those channels, we must have permission. And what does that permission open up? It opens up direct communication as well as personal data. And most importantly, that data is regulation proof because now it's first party and we have that relationship. Right. So could you explain the difference between explicit versus implicit permission? Yeah. So there's implicit permission is going to be if someone, a really simple example, someone comes to your site, you've never seen them before, but they looked at a product and you then retarget them. That is implicit permission. They are engaged and they're interested in you in some way, shape, or form, but they didn't explicitly give you permission. Uh, Explicit permission is stated, right? They've filled out a form. um, They've said, here are my permissions. They've checked a box and said it's okay to communicate with them, right? They've explicitly stated that it's okay to engage with them. Okay. So personal. You say that the, the personal element goes beyond how personally we can make an experience, but how personally we can deliver it. Did I get that right? Yeah, pretty much. So the old idea of personal was, you know, personalization in the limited media era was all about how can we mass 
customize. And the, the best customization is a one-to-one customization, right? And so that's where we get to this apex of direct marketing, which was one-to-one. And I argue that that's no longer the apex. And just sim- think about this from a simplistic standpoint, right? And I don't remember who made this statement, but it's very profound. The highest value of the internet is not publication, it's direct personal access, right? The ability for each individual to interact with anybody else across the globe, that is what we need to think about. That's the power. And then when we think about what is then past one-to-one, well, at the base, one-to-one is one message from one brand to one individual. But if we go back to what is the highest value of the internet, it's human connection. And we can go past one brand message to one individual to one human interacting with another human on the brand's behalf. And then backstep into all those things we've talked about, influencer marketing. That's exactly what that is. Social media, that's exactly what that is. So we need to find ways to work with our marketplace to then make sure that it's one human engaging with another human on our behalf, and that's the apex of personal. And that leads so nicely into what was probably my favorite part of the framework, which was authentic. And I just got a quote. You say, authentic is easily the most subjective element of the context framework. Everyone has a different idea about what makes a communication authentic or not. But get it wrong and you'll pay a price. Even when your brand experience hits the most contextual levels of being available, permission, and personal, it will flop if it strikes an inauthentic note. Why is authenticity Harder than it looks, as you say. It's so hard because marketers don't. When you're when marketers create marketing, they think from usually a mass standpoint. Mm-hmm. They say, "How can I create one message that scales that gets as many people to do as what I want?" Right. Um, I always to illustrate this. I always ask people to the following question. Right. How do you manage your email inbox when you walk in in the morning? Do you open the first email? start to read the contents, decide to continue reading it or delete it, move to the next email, open it up and work your way through your inbox, or do you do B? Do you scan all the subject lines, delete the crap, and then work on the rest? (laughs) Everyone does B. And my question is then, how are you so good that you can identify the contents of an email as marketing fluff with only using 100 characters of information and doing so in a fraction of a second? And the answer is marketers are so bad at writing subject lines because they try to write a subject line to convert as many people as possible, and it is evidently clear to an individual, right? So this is what we're talking about as authentic. When everyone started to get the ability to communicate and create messages, it becomes expertly clear at what is an authentic engagement. And we need to think about that when we craft everything from messages, from subject lines to experiences. And we must make sure that they are authentic um, and as authentic as possible. And, And like you say, that is the key differentiation. Very important. And the last one is purpose. And I want to ask, is that what you were talking about as it related to Tesla? They, they had a purpose. And, and also, why do most companies not pursue this really at all? Yeah, so it's exactly right that it is, Tesla is a purpose-driven company. Why most people, what most people get wrong about this concept of purpose is they believe purpose is only social justice. So we asked 4,500 brands from across the globe, you know, we all understand purpose is a good thing. Why aren't you doing it? And what they said was the following, um, don't have executive support. Um, we are afraid of isolating our audience. Um, and the third is they didn't have the ability or, or the vision to be able to connect their product to a purpose. And really, to me, that that means they only see it as social justice. 
you need to rethink the definition of purpose as stakeholder theory, which is any stakeholder inside of your ecosystem, that is your customers, the environment that you operate in, the communities, your employees, your partners, that is your world, right? Find some purpose inside of that and then work to that, right? So Tesla, help get the world off of fossil fuels, And that is their purpose. And you start looking at all these different initiatives that that are possible. And then you see the ones that fail. (laughs) The easiest one that comes to mind was Pepsi's uh, Kendall Jenner (laughs) mishap last year, right? It was highly inauthentic. It had nothing to do with anything. There wasn't, it wasn't even real social justice people. It was made up signs and a made up storyline, right? That then, you know, kind of piggybacked on a a major movement that was going on at the time. And, you know, 50 years ago, they would have gotten away with it because people couldn't have backlash. There there wasn't the backlash that was possible that was possible today. But then you saw Dr. Martin Luther King's daughter, Beatrice, reply on Twitter, like, if only daddy knew the power of Pepsi. (laughs) I had not seen that until I read it in your book, but I knew what you were talking about from that fiasco. And again, I looked back on that and thought, of course, they were still thinking they were, the, they were in the era of limited media. Right. And, and this really goes to this concept of with, not on, right? And you could just kind of lump all of this into th- three basic words, with, not on. We need to find ways that we work with our marketplace, not how do we force messages onto them. And if we just reshift and just approach everything with how can I work with them, right? The business model, right? It's It's originally starting by working with the marketplace, right? Human to human. How do I engage my audience? How do I engage my stakeholders to help them create experiences together, right? It's those three words, with, not, on. Boy, that would be such a great book title. Maybe you could do that for your your third book, with, not, on, (laughs) because it also brings to mind Anthony Annarino's quote about sales, where he says, sales is not something you do to someone. It's something, when done correctly, you do with them. So, Matthew, we're almost out of time. I wanted to ask you one other question, though. We're having to skip over some things, which is not fair, but as it relates to getting this buy-in, I can only imagine the kind of friction that people are going to uh, encounter. And you talk in the book about how to get buy-in for contextual marketing with your sales team and others as well, but I was particularly keen on that. Can you talk briefly about how understanding the questions and objections that your sales teams get can really help you to get buy-in for contextual marketing, not to, not to mention improving your overall uh, ability to sell. Yeah. So, let's just go back to those three words, with, not, on, right? And now, when, when we talked earlier, right, this is experiences across the entire customer journey. So, what's really going to happen is we're going to take a lot of these marketing things that we know, right? Specific marketing tactics, onboarding, nurturing in the specific case that we're talking about. And we're now going to start to apply them all the way across the customer journey because they they have radical results anywhere on an experience. And so, a common one is, you know, businesses buy a tool that allows them to create nurturing programs. And then they go to the sales department and say, hey, listen, you have a long sales cycle. We are going to create some nurturing programs for you um, to help you stay in front of those prospects over a long sales cycle. Theoretically, good idea. But then what happens is they put those programs in place and sales never utilizes them. If those programs are never utilized, everything that you just did was for naught. You're not going to have any results. You're going to lose funding for the program and you're going to have to come up with something else. The problem is that marketers created programs and then forced them on sales without sales involvement. Again, with, not on. Instead, what we must do is realize that sales and any 
department where we're going to be moving into and creating experiences has a lot of knowledge that we need. And we must work with them to understand that knowledge. And specifically in the case of sales, we need to understand what is their current cadence? How do they follow up with people? How do they talk about things? We need to get the emails that they've been sending because you got to remember, these people have been doing these jobs for a while. They know what works because if it's not working, we're going to fire them because they have quotas. Like we know that the ones that are here are effective in some way, shape, or form at a level. We need to harness that knowledge. And then with that knowledge, we need to create programs with them because if they have buy-in to the programs, they then use those programs and they only are going to buy into them if we build them with them rather than force them on them. Um, and that's just, the, once again, another concept of with, not on, of how do we get the emails? How do we understand their cadence? You know, how do we create, create a core group to, you know, roll this out? And I would suggest getting, you know, the best and brightest because everyone wants to be the best and brightest um, and then scaling that out across the organization and everyone will adopt it. Yes, that was at the very end of the book. And I just it was one more a jewel in there that I thought was so helpful for marketing people. So, Matthew, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? That basic concept of with, not on. Um, we live in a new time, right? And that's the whole core premise of why Harvard wanted to write this book, was that we need to realize that we have left the old era and we are in a completely new point in time. That doesn't just mean there's more noise. It means a new environment where everything has to be reimagined, right? Including the business models we operate from, the techniques and tactics that we utilize, right? And in that, if we just take the basic approach of how do we work with people, not how do I come up with some creative way to get people to do what I want, but how do I work with them the entire way? And then that creates the best outcomes. So what is one thing a listener could do today to start to put into action any of the ideas from your book? Yeah, there's a simple concept and it's called a review, right? So here's another thing I love to ask marketers, right? I say, listen, all right, we all believe, you know, we do, we all do content marketing. When was the last time that you actually reached out to an individual that downloaded a piece of content to ask them what they thought of that content? Because the download metric that we use to validate this is only half the story. And then let me fill you in with the data to kind of support this. I guess it was a few years ago, I did a survey and I asked buyers, I said, have you ever been disappointed with the content that you've downloaded from a brand? 71% of people said yes. And that's not the surprising part, right? The surprising part is to what extent were they disappointed? 25% of those people said they were so disappointed they would never engage with that brand ever again. So if we're only looking at the download metric, there's a lot of unhappy people, right? And all we simply need to do is pick up the telephone and call seven people who have had an experience, doesn't matter what the experience is, but we need to physically talk to them. Don't try to do this with a survey because again, who's ever like, man, that was the best survey I ever took. You know, like people hate surveys, right? So reach out and physically talk to them and ask them three basic questions. First question, what got you to this moment? Right? That's going to tell us, are we in context? Is this the correct point in time on their journey? Two, did this experience fulfill the expectations that you had of it? Right? That's going to tell us, are we actually doing what they expect us to be doing? And then third, have you seen better? We don't need to go rack our brains and try to be super creative. They're just going to tell you what is better. Just simply go do that. Um, and it's just that one basic concept of we need to start asking people and reviewing uh, in a different way and not just simply relying on vanity metrics. That is such great advice. And on page 205, where you 
have that in the book. I marked it up no fewer than four times. You said, ask yourself, when was the last time you picked up the phone to talk to someone who had engaged with your marketing with the express goal of learning how to make that experience better for the next person? I've put this question to tens of thousands of marketers from around the globe, and less than 1% of marketers have ever made such a phone call. Now think, what product manufacturer would produce a product and never ask its audience what they think of it? So, Matthew, what books have inspired your work and career? You've mentioned uh, McLuhan already. Oh, there's, there's so many. Uh, McLuhan, I'll just list some authors. Uh, Marsh McLuhan, uh, Doc Searles, Joseph Pine, um, Clayton Christensen. Um, and, you know, if, if the, those are all just, I think, some of the most important uh, works in my life, as well as E.F. Schumacher's um, Small is Beautiful. I think the, the, that collection of books has probably had more of an impact on the way I think and, and the way I operate than anything else. Wow, that's quite a list. We'll make sure to include uh, links to all uh, works of all of those authors in your episode show notes at, at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend? And particularly, tell me if there's any more Salesforce employees writing books. <laughs> we do have another book coming out um, that'll be coming out probably in the next year or two, um, as well as you know we just had our, our the Trailblazer book from Mark come out uh, talking about you know the power of an individual to transform the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, those are all great. I, I think in terms of the best book that I think that I'm really excited about currently is Clayton Christensen's last book, talking about the jobs to be done framework. I think that was an extremely powerful um, way of helping people specifically understand kind of what people are, are hiring them to do and how do we actually then meet those goals and, and through that drive demand. Yes, and uh, sadly, we, we lost uh, Clayton Christensen to cancer very recently and uh, at the at the age of 67. So um, special thoughts go out to, to him and his family and all the people that he's, he's influenced, including yourself. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to your uh, sites and social media, including your LinkedIn profile, so le- listeners can connect with you, and, and hopefully they'll thank you for joining us on the show. And we'll definitely include a link to matthewsweezy.com. That's one T in Matthew, three E's in Sweezy. Now, just so the listener understands, that's not Matthew's tagline. I just came up with that, so he he would never say that. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. The name of the book is The Context Marketing Revolution, How to Motivate Buyers in the Age of Infinite Media. The author is Matthew Sweezy. Matthew, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And that closes the book on episode 273 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And if you'd like to record a question that could be answered on a future episode, please go to marketingbookpodcast.com and record it. And please join us next time as we welcome Robin Dreek to talk about his book, Sizing People Up, a veteran FBI agent's user manual for behavior prediction. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Jessica Ambrose.
Um, thanks, hey Amen. Thanks so much for having me and just taking the time to read the book and care. Um, I mean, I really value your feedback and the fact that you're not like, hey, dude, this is a stupid book. I, I'm excited. <laughs> this is this is one that's really going to stick. I mean, just like Tiffany's and uh, you know, so many of them. But it it's really important. And like I said, I've already started stealing <laughs> things from it. I think that's the best compliment I could have is that you've already started, you know, sharing some of the stuff that you've learned. It's it's that good. So I really appreciate that. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.